It's an opportunity then for a venture capitalist to get together with a bunch of programmers and say, let's do what Spore did, but let's start with what yeah. the guys from Noble Ape and everybody that's in Biota podcast are already coming up with. I don't think they with. go far enough. See, I think I look at Noble Ape and I, you know, there, what's there is the computer science. Right. Now you need, uh, you're right, $100 million. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Hi there, Tom. Hey, Gerald. Good to talk to you. Hey. So, as you know, we have some news and notes, and we may have uh, more callers calling in, but uh, I'll start by saying if folks want to call in, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. The next episode, Friday the 11th of July at 8 p.m. Pacific, new and closed to open source. This topic was discussed in the Biota Conversations. Is open source good for artificial life? However, I thought with about 15 months since we last talked about it, there may be an interesting topic to discuss about creating new open source artificial life projects or moving closed source artificial life projects into open source. I was debating initially whether we would call this the Jeffrey Ventrella intervention, but I understand that he may actually be in Canada when we'll be recording this show. More on that a little bit later. However, it's uh, pretty critical for uh, there to be a, a, a nice group of open source artificial life projects currently particularly if you look at things like the Evo Grid, but also I appeared this week on Floss Weekly. And whilst the audio hasn't yet gone up, it will be released sometime this evening, I've heard. Gerald, did you have a chance to listen to the unedited version I, I passed out to the group? No, I didn't quite have time, but I subscribed to Floss Weekly, so I'll get it in the feed, of course. Terrific, terrific. Quite a long chat, quite a lot of stuff discussed. It'll be interesting to see how they edit it down. The Biota CDs, we have a 1,000 CDs that will be arriving sometime in the next week in Las Vegas, and then about 400 of them will go to the UK, and bundles of 50 and 25 will go to various other places. However, if your university or institution would be interested in a pile of Biota CDs, please get in contact with me. I heard from the folks in Brighton this week that some of them are going to Artificial Life 11, so some of them will be getting the CDs through that. However, some aren't going. And I saw their displays on Facebook, and they look like a, an interesting group of folk who would uh, certainly benefit from Biota CDs. But if you know a similar group of people, please get in contact with me, Tom, at noble8.com. The Biota CDs contain about 16 hours' worth of Biota podcast-related audio, information on how to subscribe, and also that very important bit of information that once you've done subscribing, please pass on the CDs to others. And it'd be interesting to see uh, how many folks subscribe to the podcast based on the Biota CDs. Grey thumb news. Bruce Damer will be in London on July 11th, actually next Friday, discussing the Evo grid and having a chat with Justin Lyon. It is, I think, possibly the third or maybe even the fourth meeting of Greytham London, and it is at the British Computer Society, 5 Southampton Street, London. Now, it's critical that folks get in contact with the British Computer Society at least 24 hours before the Greytham London meeting if they're interested in attending. Uh, the person to contact is Mandy Bayer. Her email address is mandy.bauer at 
hq.bcs.org.uk and the contact number is 01793417417. It's critical that folks in London who are interested in attending, and particularly folks coming out from Brighton or other areas in the in the south of the UK, that they get in contact with Mandy and let them know that, let Mandy know that they're coming. Otherwise, you won't be able to get in, unfortunately. The great um, Silicon Valley San Francisco videos went up, but I'd like to send a shout-out to Dick Gordon and possibly a wide variety of other folk who are listening to the podcast in Second Life currently. Ironically, well, there were a number of things through the videos. I thought they were really well done, and, and thanks once again to Al Lundell for putting these videos online. Through Sharon Minsook's demonstration, it occurred to me that she and Dick Gordon uh, vend on a lot of issues, and I contacted Dick and Sharon today, and it turns out that they had been talking about six months prior with regards to their various artificial life interests, so it might be interesting to see some collaboration there. And similarly, BIOTA is part of the Contact Consortium, and there was a new group started this week in the Contact Consortium. Bruce Dame has been talking about it a little bit, but it's the Virtual Worlds Timeline Project. This is an interesting project because there is some overlapping into artificial life, but also we will probably do an artificial life timeline uh, or artificial life roadmap, more importantly, sometime in the near future. So the lessons learned from the, the virtual world's roadmap uh, will certainly be useful with regards to the artificial life roadmap as well. I appeared on Floss Weekly, and uh, it was a, an interesting interview. Uh, I passed out the uh, unedited audio to a, folk, a group of folk who have appeared on Biota Live previously, but at the end of the interview, Leo Laporte and Randall Schwartz, who were the two interviewers, mentioned that they thought that the biota community needed an infusion of $100 million in order to make what we were talking about real. And I thought that was a very interesting figure. Certainly when Bruce got to that point in the unedited interview, he had a good chuckle about it as well. Do you think $100 million is enough, Gerald? Oh, by no means. It would take a lot more than that. And that was my thinking as well. I think 100 million each. But anyway, it was, it was a fascinating chat. I think there was some insight that came through it and also some greater kind of connection to the open source community. And it'll be interesting to see. They claim to have about 30,000 listeners. It could be a little bit more. It could be a little bit less. But Gerald and I subscribe to it. So we're already active listeners to Floss Weekly. But it'll be interesting to see the overlap with regards to the open source community that listens to Floss and folks that are interested in artificial life. They are probably listening to this very podcast, Gerald, for the first time, having listened to the Floss Weekly uh, chat. So welcome to the folks who are listening based on Floss Weekly. This is a, something you can actively contribute to in terms of participating in Biota Live. We also have a, a variety of mailing lists, both the Evo Grid, Biota Conversations, the related Grey Thumbs, please check out the Biota site and click on the mailing list link to get more information with regards to that. For folks who are listening in currently, we have, uh, we have an additional person in the chat window. If you would like to participate in the chat as opposed to calling a US number, you can get to it from the Blog Talk Radio page, which you can get to from biota.org slash podcast. If you would like to call the US number, the number to call is 646 646- Two zero 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 six four zero. Now, Gerald, I put the call out last week with regards to a particular topic, and I got one response but no feedback in addition to that initial response. So I put the call out that a new topic should be proposed with regards to this evening's chat. What do you think we should talk about this evening? Oh, we should talk about everything possible, anything that comes up. Very good, very good. But you did put a specific topic out there. Yeah, well, I wanted to, uh, I mean, I, I, several times I've seen the, uh, the, the noble ape simulation, I've seen the, the cognitive simulation, and uh, you've talked about it a bit in terms of fear and desire, but uh, um, th- those are not the right terms for me to understand it. So uh, if, if there's some way to, for you to explain some of it in terms of how, uh, how the uh, like the software works, if, if you even understand it. Certainly, certainly. And there's some good background to this because I've just submitted the nature-inspired informatics chapter on the cognitive simulation as well. So I'm, I'm pretty well primed for this kind of discussion. I thought it might be easiest if I just gave some background into the kind of leading towards the fear and desire concepts to see how I got 
to fear and desire, and they're moving from fear and desire into, into broader simulation models. Can I interrupt you if you're not technical enough? Certainly. Certainly. Okay. Well, I wanted to talk in, in general terms initially about how I actually came to the Noble Ape Cognitive Simulation because I think that might give some background in terms of why we started with these concepts and then moving on from there. But the background to the Noble Ape Cognitive Simulation, I started developing Noble Ape and in the process of starting the development, I collected together a wide variety of pieces of software that I'd written up until that point. And one of those was an agar simulation. And agar simulation had been something I'd been tinkering with probably three or four years prior to the development of Noble Ape, mainly just as a means of doing full-screen real-time graphics. And this was something that I was doing on Hercules monitors on old XTs, but also early VGA monitors as well as just a way of trying to improve frame rates and these kind of things. And the agar simulations could produce kind of beautiful color effects. So the background with regards to the software was an agar simulation, but in terms of the broader methodologies, two texts come to mind. The first is by David Kirsch, and it actually appeared in Margaret A. Bowden's Philosophy of Artificial Life book. And David Kirsch was talking about the problems associated with concept-driven artificial intelligence models. So basically taking objects and then taking the objects out and describing the objects as autonomous components as you put them into whatever artificial intelligence model you were using. And his analysis came from Rodney Brooks' early work at MIT with regards to putting cameras on robotic ants and how if the robotic ants had to actually work out objects through their cameras, that it created a, a wide variety of kind of clunky causation that slowed down the artificial intelligence gathering process associated with these robotic ant or cockroach-like creatures wandering around. So David Kirsch had generated out of that some distinction between concept-driven and concept-free artificial intelligence models. And I was fascinated by this idea of concept-free artificial intelligence, the idea that you would just have streams of information coming into your artificial intelligence model and then you would get uh, actuators from that and the way the sensors interacted with the particular AI model in order to get uh, movement and other, other things coming out. So that was the kind of raw component of the cognitive simulation. And I also had read a lot of Bertrand Russell, and I was fascinated by Bertrand Russell's idea of logical atomism. And logical atomism at its core is about describing sense data in, in atomic particles. But that initially looked like it was talking about concept-driven artificial intelligence, that these atoms were actually highly descriptive components. I thought to myself, it didn't have to be that way. These atoms could just be part of the stream. They could just be kind of distinct frames almost if, if it was taking in camera information, for example, into the AI model. So from this, I wanted something where information was constantly being pumped into whatever AI I had. I like the idea of concept-free as opposed to actually taking objects out. And I had this agar simulation, which I had been developing for three or four years. And what interested me in the agar simulation was not, and to give some background to the agar simulation, it related to energy-rich agar, which kind of bacterial growth, single and multi-species bacterial growth occurred in the agar with various breeding and movement properties through the agar, which really was tuned more for visual effect than any kind of biological modeling. But through this agar simulation, I started seeing what I was thinking of in terms of kind of like meta-agar, in terms of information transfer. So rather than looking just at strict population density movement, that you could look at the way this population density moved as a means of information transfer as opposed to just population densities moving over the agar. So this got me thinking again, and I found two fundamental components to these population density moving, movements, irrespective of the weightings or what have you that I put into the agar simulation. And one of these things was a kind of spreading uh, operator which took a single population, a single point in the agar, and effectively as it grew, it kind of smeared over, and this is just simple cell-cell um, intersection in some regard, or uh, agar-cell agar cell intersection. And the second thing that struck me was as soon as I put any uh, regenerative growth back in the agar, the idea that the bacteria would feed on the, the dead carcasses of the previous bacteria. There was almost a wave-like motion that actually came through the agar. A bacteria died into the agar and then was used again as food. And this produced a different kind of operator, which was more kind of time undulating. 
So from these two competing equations, I launched Noble Ape with a cognitive simulation that was very similar to two-dimensional agar. It was, it was flat. However, rather than based on population densities that were moving through, it just had these two functions, one representing a spatial spread and the other one representing a time-changing component that kind of describes the two agar properties that I've, I've mentioned. And initially, I had wanted to write a document that was, in some regard, a manifesto to the Noble Ape development. And what came out of that was the original manuals, which I believe you own a copy of, Gerald. Mm-hmm, that's true. Whether or not you've read it, it's not necessarily important <laughs> conversation. Lots of people seem to own copies. A few have thumbed through it, depending on their particular interests. However, the original manuals was just overwhelming for a lot of people. And the people who read the original manuals typically didn't use the software as heavily as the people that didn't read the original manuals. There were all these kind of distinctions between who was reading the original manual and who was using the software and the overlap. So I wrote another document. In fact, I wrote a series of documents, including a description of two-dimensional vision, a description of the mathematics, and the third document I wrote was a document called Noble Ape Philosophic. I think I also wrote a Noble Ape Biologic as well. But Noble Ape Philosophic was a document that described in part some molding of these ideas from Birch and Russell, but also my own thoughts that these two operators that I had seen within the agar could be given two high-level names. One, desire, which represented the spatial spread of information, and the other fear, which represented the time undulating component of the information. And in terms of a, an emotive sense, desire worked well because it reinforced the surrounding structure, which is almost kind of like generating temporal reinforcing component. And fear worked well because it was extremely reactive as the DT component was. So these two names stuck, although mapping the names from Noble Ape Philosophic into the cognitive simulation occurred in a kind of 96-97 time frame. When I was writing the Nature Inspired Informatics chapter, I went back and tried to find original texts, and it was very difficult finding the linking components, but I do have some of the earlier discussion texts that I'd written and some early emails and these kind of things. I was able to cobble together a time frame with regards to those things. Now, the, visualize, uh, the vision information, which really related to all sense data that came into the Noble Ape, but in this case specifically, it related in kind of a scanning horizon, caused problems with the initial agar simulation. What I had originally was something that was very similar to a kind of cloud generator where the vision was along one axis, I think from memory the, the Y axis, and the X information just time spread through. And then there were actuators at the end that filtered the information that had come through the vision information. So there was a kind of time gap between when the vision information was pumped in versus when the actuators actually took movement from the initial vision information. And this algorithm didn't work particularly well. However, I did use it as a cloud generation algorithm for doing the sky in Noble Ape after the fact. There was a lot of recycling of code through the early Noble Ape development. What I realized was that there needed to be an additional dimension, that a two-dimensional cognitive simulation with a one-dimensional vision driver just wasn't working. So from that came the three-dimensional cognitive simulation, which you see to this day in, in Noble Ape. However, having established that, there still needed to be a lot of tuning. So if you look... Well, so there was a kind of dip of Noble Ape development between about um, 97 and 99, I picked up again very heavily in 99 through to about 2000, 2001, particularly with regards to tuning the cognitive simulation. And if you appreciate the cognitive simulation is based on the idea of desire, the idea of fear, and also this concept of the identity, which just represents the, the, the brain value, the, the raw brain value. And these three things are combined with weightings, which are based in the waking simulation purely on fear and desire, and in the sleeping simulation on basically half-weighted fear and desire plus a continuing component of identity. And this produces the noble ape dream state in some regard, which gives some refining of uh, the, the cognitive simulation, the, the identity through sleep, but not quite the same way as through wake, obviously. Now, there are a number of interesting things that come out of this that I write about in the Nature-Inspired Informatics text, specifically with regards to the weightings, because there are interesting underlying mathematical effects. You get 
and this was stated by Leo, and I um, mentioned it in the Nature Inspired Informatics chapter as well, almost like glider effects as you get in Conway's life through the Cogneb simulation when the noble ape is awake. And these things form almost, they're not standing state, but they're time evolving, but um, also maintaining properties that come through the size of the, the three-dimensional cube. Uh, I don't understand a word you're saying. Okay. Because uh, what, I'm, what, what you're telling is a historical and philosophical story. Yes. And uh, like when things happened and, uh, uh, you know, what, what was the thinking behind it. And, of course, you know, with, um, with artificial intelligence, there's been a, a lot of mistakes made by, uh, vir- by virtue of the fact that people have sort of, you know, used words that made things seem intelligent when they weren't. I, I think that's called the ELISA effect. And um, there was a, a book I read a long time ago by Doug Hofstetter called uh, Fluid Analogies in Creative Thinking. And uh, it's a really fascinating book because what he does is uh, he and his graduate students, they've written a number of systems that work in uh, domains that are so simple that they can't confuse you with this effect. They can't tell you that, uh, you know, this this is... Um, you know, it's understanding what you're saying because the way it works is on the basis of analogies. Analogies, and those are described in terms of just sequences of letters doing like jumbles and things, jumbles of letters. So if we say, for example, uh, AAB goes to AAC, then an analogy would be BBD goes to BBF. You know, so that, that's a certain analogy, whether it's weaker or stronger. So it was all formulated in those terms with the specific purpose of avoiding the confusion of, uh, I guess, I think that's called the ELISA effect, where, where people assume intelligence that's, that's not necessarily there. And your description using fear and desire is, uh, for me, uh, something that I really can't appreciate in, in technical terms. So if, if there's a way to describe it without using fear and desire, like, for example, what is the... The substrate. What's the shape of it? And suppose we don't even use the word fear and desire. What kind of numbers are happening? I don't even know, to be honest, what the word agar really refers to. So, so maybe in those terms a little more. So agar, in the sense, represents an energy value, and uh, in the case of a single bacterial model, a population value. Is it an, uh, an acronym? Agar. It's a biological thing. You put your finger or something in some agar and you give it a little warmth and you watch the bacteria grow. How's it spelled? E-G-A-R or A-G-A-R? A-G-A-R. Okay, got it. Anyway, continue. The initial agar simulation related to, as I said, energy and population. And it was just awaiting with regards to how populations grew and moved through this agar. Okay, sort of like a Petri dish. Yes, exactly. Exactly. A two-dimensional matrix or something? Exactly. Okay, so it's Cartesian, square, two-dimensional. Certainly. I, um, early on, particularly with regards to doing self-sustaining agar simulations, did end wraparound, so it's effectively toroidal. Okay, and uh, when you go into the three-dimensional uh, version of it that you worked on later, that, that's also toroidal, but then in 3D? Yes. Okay. In terms of fear and desire, desire, if I is the uh, identity matrix, Desire is DIDS fundamentally. So it's the spatial spread of the identity values. And Mm -hmm. fear is DIDT fundamentally. It's the temporal change within a single cell over time. So what what does this eventually do? I mean, it's, it's kind of strange because you're talking about a cognitive simulation, which is simulated by a a Petri dish. I mean, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like the Petri dish is going to, you know, be intelligent all that quickly. Uh, so what kind of intelligence is this? Is, is, it, um, is it something that could be easily uh, represented by something else, or is it...? It's analogous in some regards to a neural network in terms of the effect of neighboring cells. However, unlike a neural network, it doesn't... Well, it has a number of properties that neural networks don't have in terms of the cell communication, also in terms of the, the very basic nature of the time-evolving components. 
If you understand the agar analogy in terms of the population energy. Okay, well, let me just ask you then this. Um, you've got this petri-dish simulation. How does the sensory information arrive? The sensory information is, is put into the petri dish as if it were, in the petri dish analogy, almost raising and lowering bacterial populations at a particular point, or in the case of the simulation, through a series of points. Okay, so in other words, creatures are added or something, or uh, population is raised. Okay. And as time evolves, other points in the agar are taken with regards to movement, for example. Mm-hmm. And... and to what degree do you know that it works? Just observe the results so you, and you can see the, the various movements and, and there seems to be some behaviors that are probably recognizable. Yeah. To what degree is this process scientific? This is a very interesting philosophical question. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a philosophical question. I, you, can, you can look at something and quite easily decide whether it's sort of operating on the basis of the scientific method or, you know, with that, with that kind of thing in mind. Does it, does it actually represent something in the real world or does, uh, is there some expectation we should have that it should work? Not at all. Okay, so, so in other words, it's not a scientific phenomenon. It's a, well, if you look at, for example, the sinusoidal movement that are connected to genetic components in Darwin at home, for example, would you say mm-hmm. that that was part of the scientific method, the, the mode of movement? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, uh, my, my work is much more um, artistic as well. So yeah. I'm just trying to get behind this, you know. A certain number of aspects in, in the stuff that uh, that, that uh, we're doing with artificial life is, uh, you know, I don't know, what would you say, arbitrary or something? It's just in, invented uh, just to see, uh, see what it looks like uh, without necessarily a, a, a you know, hypothesis uh, to be proved. In, in a way, you know, what I've been doing is more like that. Uh, in fact, they asked me uh, when, I, when I gave the first demonstration at the, at the Artificial Intelligence Conference, they, they approached me to, if, if I was interested in doing a PhD, I was going to be at the University of Maastricht. You know, my, I had to think about it a lot, and I decided in the end that it wouldn't be uh, something that I could uh, spend the time on at this, at this point in life. But um, it, it, what I... What I did to make Darwin at home could be obviously analyzed in, in, a, in a scientific way. I could have, uh, you know, worked out ways to make uh, graphs of, of, of different phenomena that were observed in the evolution and stuff. And I, I'm sure I could have uh, eventually filled up a PhD with all sorts of uh, observations that were really totally scientific in nature. It, it could have been done. For me, that dried it out somewhat too. Which is part of the reason that I didn't go, go that route, because the way I saw it happening was sort of stop with development and try and write it all down and analyze it all. I felt sort of, you know, mournful when I thought about stopping, stopping development, and, and I didn't really think that I could do both very well. You know, sometimes you just want to proceed rather than analyze. And in that sense, it's like having a paintbrush in your hand and, and continuing with, with your painting, which is also not scientific. I was just trying to understand, you know, your cognitive simulation in those terms. Was is it, you know, it's obviously something that's it's an example. It's a very good example of intelligent design. You just made it up. Yeah, I think if you look at also the biological simulation, the underlying theme was taking completely different approaches to a problem which had had failed to be solved or solved adequately with the methodology at the time. So in that regard, yes, I guess the cognitive simulation in Noblefe is fundamentally a black box, which is really, it it depends on what your definition of the scientific method is in some of these examples, though, because, I mean, if you look at string theory, for example, would you say that was part of the scientific method? Uh, Yeah, of course, it's a a theory that's uh, attempting to to arrive at uh, predictions you know, if it, if it doesn't, then uh, it will eventually be discarded. I, I read a, an article a while ago that string theory in, in particular has been around for like 10 or 15 years longer than, than some people thought was justified because it hasn't made enough predictions yet. So, yes. you know, there, there are certain things that even though they're, uh, you know, a huge phenomena in the scientific community, they haven't really attained the status of being uh, predictors. Our talk last week with Stefan was... was was interesting as well because his, his all, whole work was, uh, you know, very, very much focused on the scientific approach. In other words, the, the, the simulation he was doing was intended to accomplish something 
so there's an associated hypothesis. Presumably, it'll be broken up into several parts and then described in gory detail in his PhD eventually when he's, when he's finished. But it's all about proving the analogy is sound and then uh, seeing what the simulation does and trying to determine whether that has some implication uh, with respect to biology. So it's, it's constantly jumping back and forth between biology and simulation and saying, uh, are we getting close? Are we getting close? Does this really represent something? And this is, in your work, you know, it doesn't sound like it, it played a really central role at all. And for my stuff as well, I mean, I, I've never really felt compelled to make this, the structures that run and nowadays the structures that are uh, growing, uh, you know, the integrities that are growing. I've never really felt the uh, all-consuming urge to make it look like something in nature or to make it represent something in nature. I, I think of it in, you know, much more abstract terms. But, I mean, the interesting thing talking with Stefan is that there is some strange transition between the real world and the artificial life world in terms of the way they're, I don't know whether utopianizing is the correct term, but the, the way in which they are creating artificial life plants. I think the interesting part of the discussion talked about when he moved from a purely genetic model and a purely energy and what they were getting from the, the simulated voxel soil and the simulated voxel sky into some hybridization of these two ideas. Certainly what Stefan offered was not necessarily something that went back into the scientific method. There was an element of play, which maybe we didn't talk about as much as we possibly should have, but I thought that was fascinating too, that what he's doing is not strictly part of the scientific method in terms of biological understanding. They're actually trying to find almost a new kind of simulation methodology that may then reach back into, into biology. I would make a, a, a prediction that none of this will appear in his PhD thesis. Yes, I, it's interesting because, I mean, he's a mathematician, as the whole group is. So they are not biologists fundamentally. They're looking for, for mathematical modeling methods, I would assume. Yeah, so, but still, when it, when it comes down to it, when, uh, when they have to defend the whole process to, to the outside world and to you know, peer review, they're going to have to really go for the theme of you know, the degree to which it's analogous to real biology and the degree to which it lends itself to whatever, making predictions or, uh, I guess it, it comes down to making predictions. Because, I mean, my reading of what he was saying was that the virtual worlds, the uh, future Second Life spores and World of Warcrafts, in terms of the money that may be coming in through those avenues would probably far outweigh anything that would be coming in through the biological sciences with regards to future funding of this kind of development. I mean, certainly my correspondence with with Stefan's broader team and also my discussions with Bruce seem to indicate that the, the long-term goals for these kind of simulations was just as much to get them into, you know, the next generation of MMOs as it was to pass back solid biological simulation data. Was that your reading too? Yeah, well, likewise, none of this will get into the PhD. You know, it, may, it might be a, a, a side issue, something that, you know, something that he... Uh, He's had, had thoughts about, but in the end, uh, what he's going to have to present to uh, his peers will be other stuff entirely. It's going to have to really say something about biology, I presume. It's not going to be something like, uh, you know, wow, this would be really cool for artificial life or for, uh, for artificial worlds, you know, virtual worlds. And, you know, I, I know as well as anybody that sort of artificial life would be real fun to kill. Certainly, or re real fun to learn from as well in some regard. No, it'll be interesting to see, and I mean, if Stefan's listening or if any of his team are listening, correspondence with regards, this would be wonderful too, to get some sense of whether the outcomes were to feed back into the biological sciences or to make the, uh, the next wave of computer games, or maybe both even. I mean, they may not be mutually exclusive. But anyway, Gerald, in terms of the uh, Noble Ape Cognitive Simulation, do you want me to continue? Do you have any more questions? It's, it's been useful to understand that, uh, that it's uh, a gelatinous substance derived from seaweed. <laughs> I think so. That, that's what agar, actually. That's the definition of agar. No, it's, it's interesting to, uh, to understand that it's a Petri dish with some electrodes in it, and, uh, and it seems to behave itself in a certain way, but uh, you haven't really felt the need to uh, make a direct analogy to anything in nature. 
I sent out some imploring through the Nature Inspired Informatics text that I think it, it merits some future investigation. Really, I don't know. I think it's it's something that I've certainly gotten 13 years worth of amusement out of, and there have been a few tinkerers that have gotten additional amusement out of it. Another important point is Pedro Ferreira, who appeared on the Is Open Source Good for Artificial Life Bioconversations. Conversations. He has tinkered with his own version of the cognitive simulation as well. So, I mean, there, there is the chance to tinker with agents and, and generate your own possible uh, cognitive simulations from what's already in Noble Ape. One of the sections of the Nature Inspired Informatics text, I talked about dream interpretation in Noble Apes and the fact that you could still get movement out of the sleeping brain and then interpret what the apes were doing well or dreaming of doing while they were asleep. In terms of what we've been discussing with the philosophical stickiness of artificial life, it is really down to the individual practitioners to kind of continue to find sticky problems associated with their own particular developments. So we talked about Novolate. Let's talk about Darwin at home. In terms of the possibility of interactions and perhaps sexual or asexual reproduction. I go back to our chats of, I guess, what, a year or more ago now, quite frequently because I keep catching new bits of wisdom through them. Have you thought any more about strange landscapes, multiple Darwin at home creatures wandering over these landscapes together? Have you thought any more about that? Yeah, having them interact as, as uh, you know, quote-unquote animals uh, amongst each other, that I haven't thought about that to a great degree because I've been working on uh, on the, the integrity uh, stuff, which which is more analogous to uh, growing plants. So that's why last week was was interesting for me to talk to Stefan because a lot of the you know the, the aspects of his comp, uh, simulation might be useful for for me as well. Already, this idea of how to use uh, voxels, for example, is uh, an interesting idea if you if you want to build a whole energy accounting in in a simple way into the into the system, so that you can actually have you know simulated sunlight and shadow and, and uh, this whole thing. So that, that I'd be curious to see how he does that and uh, and you know learn from that in order to create sort of plant systems, which is uh, what these integrities are uh, you know, moving towards. The idea of evolving based on energy weightings from sunlight coming down on the, on the Darwin at home creatures is absolutely fascinating. And in terms of giving a different kind of weighting, you know, previously locomotion, but if they, if they could have a, a kind of green sunlight component as well, uh, yeah, you well, see evolution in a, in a wide variety of directions you probably haven't seen up until now. There's, there's uh, something I was thinking about the other day, and I was trying to um, um, make a distinction between artificial life and artificial intelligence, because there, there seems to be some, uh, some overlap or some confusion uh, between these two. And I was thinking artificial life is something which introduces malthus right away. In other words, uh, as soon as something finds itself able to replicate, the, the next thing that will happen is that it will fill the entire universe. You know, the, 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 the pattern that appears and, and is able to replicate will, will spread endlessly uh, consuming resources until everything is full. And then presumably there's some way for it to uh, make a mistake during replication. And every so often, and it doesn't have to be particularly often at all, but you know, every so often some mistake happens to be uh, advantageous. So then uh, that advantageous translates into uh, a new element in the population that once again spreads willy-nilly in all directions. That's also based on the idea that resources are plentiful. And the fascinating thing is if, if resources are scarce... Wait a second, they're, they're plentiful in the beginning, but as soon as, uh, as, soon as replication takes over and the entire uh, universe, whatever that might be, is then occupied by replicas that are consuming resources, then, then this, uh, this plentifulness uh, disappears quickly and, and it becomes competition for, for scarce resources, depending on, of course, how you, how you construct it. But the idea that, that you're making software somehow that has the potential of 
spreading to fill every possible resource and then start consuming it. And then what I'm what I'm thinking is, and and what uh, Stefan was talking about is having a, a constant influx of uh, of you know free free energy, which makes perfect sense. It's what happens on Earth? We have uh, huge amounts of free energy coming in every day from the sun. You know that's a, that's an analogy you can you can hold on to. But of course, you know there's 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 a certain amount you can do with that energy, and and there will be competition in order to uh, you know make use of it, or uh, you know steal it from someone else by shadowing them or something like this. So this all you know eventually ties into the energy system, and this is what Stefan was talking about. Yeah, so it's not like uh, resources are plentiful, at least not right after the very first sort of replication phase change, if you will, you know, when something starts to replicate and, and occupy the entire resource base that's there, then it comes down to, uh, you know, all the all the reserves that it built up, if, if that's the way the model is, is put, all the sunshine that's already fallen can be consumed, and then, uh, you know, then you have to deal with only the stream that's coming in and then there's going to be competition to get more of that stream so that's back to scarcity so that that's what i was thinking of in terms of, of artificial life so if i were to do this in uh in darwin at home as it is and i would love to but uh, you know, time is very limited and uh by the way if there's any other developers interested in uh, looking into this i i, I welcome some uh, interaction and i can i can probably help them quite a bit and, and they've already got you know uh you know, the rest of the simulation is already there, so uh, it, it, it's a lot easier to make those steps. What I imagine right now for um, to make Darwin at Home more interesting is, is something as simple as a, a sense that resembles uh, a compass. And this compass will basically, uh, you know, be something that points towards areas of uh, more resources. So they, then you could create a landscape. You could create a whole bunch of individuals and uh, let them operate on this landscape. It could be a little more complex. It could be it could involve climbing hills or whatever. And the behavior of each of the Darwin at Home creatures would be somehow blindly based on the current value of a, of a compass setting. So you know if it if it says northeast, then your behavior will change in order to turn northeast and and go there and eat it. So uh, something like that would allow for uh, a simulation with all with large numbers of competing individuals that have survival of the fittest in a much, much more analogous way, an actual population where, there, where there's interaction. And then, you know, what, what I'm always keeping in mind is the complexity that interaction in a real sense would involve. You know, if, if I were to have to work out the spatial interactions of two Darwin at home creatures fighting with each other, good Lord, that's a huge amount of, you know, that's a huge amount of work to get that exactly right. So, you know, take a step of abstraction and you talk about proximity. And when two creatures are uh, sufficiently uh, nearby each other, they can compete in some sort of way. But they don't have to compete in physical terms with their individual, you know, bodily elements, whacking at each other or, or whatever. That, that doesn't necessarily have to happen. It can be done in more abstract terms. So what I imagine is sort of, you know, these, these little creatures scooting around the landscape on the basis of their compass and encountering each other and having sort of energy-based interactions on abstract terms to avoid all sorts of work with respect to you know what it, what it might be like to uh, to actually lock horns physically and uh, you know this was uh, very close to the analogy that uh, that Stefan was talking about he he did talk about virtual soil depletion and uh, minerals coming up from the ground and combining with sunlight shining down. That, that was uh, something that I had come up with uh, in my own sort of imagining this uh, about a week ago before I talked to Stefan. And I was, I was surprised to hear that they also uh, had actually used the idea of uh, bringing together nutrients from below and sunlight from above. And only when they come together does it become what's called a biomass uh, element. That was, uh, that was really nice to hear because it uh, sort of rhymed with what I was thinking. Certainly, certainly. And through the history of Darwin at home and even earlier when it was fluidium, have there ever been multiple agents? I set it up actually before I started evolving things. I set it up as a, as a kind of a virtual world. So it was an applet where, uh, where people were represented as, as dots that would connect up to these, uh, these structures. Structures not all that different from the way the Darwin at home creatures eventually turned out. You know, these uh, linked up uh, structures of nodes and, and connections. And we had a, a virtual world sort of scenario. Very, very simple, but we were able to sort of 
latch onto things and, and swing around like Spider-Man. There used to be a, <laughs> a group of people who did that. And I, I built the whole networking uh, aspect to it as well, so we were actually able to chat at the same time. It was very, very primitive, but it was really fun. And there was, a, at one point, we had an audio chat. There were about five of us at the same time uh, swinging around a structure like this. It was really interesting. That's very cool. Do you still have that code somewhere? Good Lord. I, I, I don't think so, no. Right, so it's not something you could you could return to and scrub up and then re-implement with regards to current code. Not really, no. And uh, you know, something like that is not all that hard to implement. Creating a chat world—it's something I could do right now, actually. And and, and it's something that I've—you've—you've uh, you've seen the applet, which I published a while ago, which is just the very, very first uh, example. But it does have all the all the elements of a virtual world. You can scoot around, you can move left, move right, and up and down. You can you can basically ride a vehicle around uh, a spatial universe. And what's happening right now is something very, uh, you know, just an initial experiment uh, showing that configuries can sort of grow and then eventually they grow too, too high and they fall over. And at the, whole, the whole time you can scoot around this universe and, and seed them all over the place. And then and so, you know, the, uh, the elements are coming in there. To add, you know, the networking and the, the multi-user aspects in the chat to it, is not all that difficult, and I would probably nowadays, uh, you know, hitchhike along with something like XMPP and and uh, and, a, and, a, and a chat server, which which you know, already exists and is very efficient. Eventually, I'd like to get to a point, indeed, where where you can share the same space in the virtual world and and uh, and chat with each other. It's not very difficult, you know. Chatting is is no big deal, network-wise. So you segued perfectly into the topic for next week and also some discussion with regards to the Greytham Silicon Valley videos that I put up on the Greytham blog last night. Watching Jeffrey's presentation in particular and also thinking about GenePool specifically and moving it into open source, the wealth of knowledge that Jeffrey has both in person and also in source code really needs to be moved into an open source context. So for example, you could start putting Darwin at home creatures into his, his gene pool world and, you know, utilize the mutual spaces. And if you generated a chat client or an interactive client, then gene pool could be used in that. And this really returns in some regards to the Evo grid as well. So the topic for next week relates to moving new projects or closed projects into open source. But I guess we're also talking about getting open source developers interested in developing artificial life projects. So hopefully we'll have folks coming from Floss Weekly with that in mind too. In terms of your own thinking, Gerald, is Darwin at Home really something that you see in isolation or do you see it as being part of a broader, possibly collaborative project that could take in things like Gene Paul, could take in certain aspects of Noble Ape, do you see it in that regard, or would you like to take elements of what you're doing with Darwin at home and put them into something like Gene Pool or Brevet or Noble Ape? Actually, when it comes down to the, uh, the, the Evo Grid vision, I have to uh, admit to being somewhat blasphemous because I know it's it's impossible it's 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 impossible to say. Uh, you know, uh, uh, this is a, this is a pipe dream. This is silly because nobody wants to hear anything like that. So uh, I won't say that, but I have to, you know, have to relate some of my skepticism with respect to uh, the the vision of having artificial life forms migrating from one place to another. It, it's uh, it's it's an, it, I'd be happy to see how it develops. But on a meta level, can you see that if, for example, you got a rich three-dimensional interactive Java environment that had chat, for example, that someone like Jeffrey would want to take gene pool and if nothing more than just take your 3D chat client that had been used very well for Darwin at home and adapt it to gene pool specifically. This is the idea of code adaptation as opposed to project interaction fundamentally, that what we need to do is create a broader kind of open source library of all our simulations that can in fact be used in a modular fashion. I talked in the Floss Weekly about the two historic Java developments of Noble Ape that I had implemented in 97, I think 2002, 2003. And I remember when you started talking about 
moving to spheres and, and planetary spheres. I passed you some Noble 8 landscape generation code for that as well. So, I mean, maybe the Evo grid is the wrong metaphor in terms of all simulators having the simulated entities communicating, but perhaps what it will do is actually share and refine our collective source code in some regard. Well, it, it, describing in those terms, Tom, that's exactly, I mean, I can agree with that wholeheartedly. And I can, uh, you know, I can really appreciate the value of that, uh, you know, in, in, in the end with the idea of mutual inspiration or, you know, uh, ideas traveling from one uh, simulation to another uh, in, in terms, you know, from, from one developer's mind to another. This, this is fine, but I haven't heard the, the evil grid described in those terms. It's been more described in terms of, uh, you know, can, can a uh, creature from this world migrate over to that world? And, uh, uh, that, that's, uh, that's a different story, I think. Certainly. But, I mean, I think what, what we are doing here is, is communicating at a number of different levels. And if we get to the stage where at least our source code is, is compatible or at least being mutually worked on, then we're a good way there in some regard. And, and we've done enough productive stuff to at least tick, you know, three out of four of the the particular Evo Group boxes. Now, with one minute remaining, I need to do a, a fast wrap-up, Gerald, but it's been wonderful talking with you this evening and uh, touching base on both of our projects. For folks listening in, uh, particularly folks who have joined us from Floss Weekly, the topic next week will be new and closed to open source and also discussing what we've just finished talking about, the idea that artificial life developers and open source developers can get together and work on code and create new and exciting interfaces and potentially new and exciting artificial life projects for the future. Thank you very much for the chance to chat with you this evening, Gerald. Okay, talk to you next time.